One of the things I love most about visiting my family in Florida, where I grew up, is sitting around with my extended family. Usually we're sitting on someone's porch or back patio, we're drinking sweet tea, and we're listening to people tell stories about our family history. And the fascinating thing about uh, growing up and getting older is that as you hear these stories, these stories that you've heard your entire life, you start to hear new details in the story because they're not protecting tiny ears that are around. Because when you're a kid, you know, you get the like tamed down, watered down PG version of a lot of the stories. But then as an adult, they give you the real reason why some of these things happen. And if, if you think it's only my family, it's not. It's your family too. And if you don't believe that, just ask about like that one cousin that doesn't come to Thanksgiving dinner anymore. And then you'll find out like the real story behind it. Up until very recently, I did not know much about my family's history, but over the past several years, I have grown more and more curious about my family lineage and uh, history. And so I've been asking a lot of questions, and as I dig in, I keep hoping that I find out that I'm connected to some sort of great line of missionaries or preachers, hoping that somewhere like in the genealogical archives, I find out that my like, great-great-grandpappy was Charles Spurgeon, and I was destined to be this great preacher. That is not the case, uh, at least so far. Uh, Instead, I hear stories like this one. Do you remember your Aunt Amy? And I go, yeah, I remember her. She was nice. What did she do? And they go, oh, she drank too much whiskey one night and shot her husband in the leg. You're like, oh, that's what happened in my family. Okay. (laughs) I bring all of that up to say this. As we begin this series, I want to tell you a bit of our family history at Table Community Church. And don't worry, no one gets shot in the story. (laughs) and it only involves responsible amounts of whiskey, okay? So here comes the story of Table Community Church. Some of you, this is going to be a ton of review, and for others of you, this is brand new information, but it's good for all of us to hear. It's even good for me to tell it again. Back in 2014, I was on staff at a church in Tigard called Colossae Church, and at the time, I was essentially in Molly's role. I wasn't overseeing kids, but I was overseeing justice and mercy, and I was part of the preaching team. But Katie and I started to feel this Holy Spirit stirring to move on from this church family that we love and to begin a new season. Well, not wanting to make a decision in isolation, we brought it to the elders of that church and we told them of this desire to move on and to be in a new or a different position. And for a season, we assumed that that meant we would be moving out of state. That in order to get kind of a lead pastor role, I would have to move out of the area. And so we actually interviewed at a church in L.A., and then we got really serious and interviewed with a church in Madison, Wisconsin, and flew out there for a week. But neither of those panned out. And much to our surprise, a few months later, the elders approached us and asked if we would consider moving to Hillsborough, Oregon, to plant a new work with about 30 or so people, people who were living and working here in Hillsborough and then driving to Tigard to go to Colossae Church on Sunday mornings. Well, for Katie and I, it was literally an answer to prayer. See, Katie's family has been a part of the Hillsborough community for like over 100 years, literally. They have lived on the same property in the same house for about 100 years. And so we wanted to be out here with her family. We knew that this is where we wanted to plant roots. And so we prayed about it for about half a second and went back to the (laughs) elders and said we would love to be a part of what God is doing in Hillsborough. So We launched what at the time was called Colossae Hillsborough in this room in February of 2015 with a handful of families. You guys have heard me say this before. None of these chairs existed. We had this section right here. There were about 30 adults in the room on that first morning. The majority of the people who were here on that first Sunday uh, are now on staff. (laughs) So... (laughs) 
you had Adam and Nicole Crow, Molly and Daniel Botsford, Beth and Taylor Farah were all part of that early crew. And this next part is really important to the story. When we launched, we launched as a congregation of or a campus of Colossae Tiger. Meaning, at the time, we were one church, two congregations. Or another way of saying it is we shared one 501c3 designation, but we existed as two independent congregations. And I, personally, am so grateful we were able to start that way. Because what it meant for me, practically speaking, is that when we planted this church, I didn't have to think about any of the administrative or financial logistics of starting a new church. And if you don't know this, there are a lot of logistics in starting a new church. So I was able to come out to Hillsboro and just do what I love to do, which is spend time with all of you and preach God's word. But our hope from the very beginning was that along the way, as we matured, We would appoint elders in this local church, that we would hire staff, that we would become financially viable, and eventually become our own entity. A few years ago, we hit that point of maturation as a church. And when I first told you guys of this a couple of years ago, I framed it like this, and hopefully this is helpful for you. Um, Think about it like the maturation you go through as as an adult or as a kid turning into an adult. You go through uh, this process. In your adolescent years, you're very dependent on mom and dad. So when you're a kid, you're living in their home, you're eating their groceries, you're using their utilities, maybe they give you gas money, you're part of their phone plan. And every time I mention this, I have to say, full disclosure, I'm still part of my parents' phone plan. (laughs) So they're watching, mom and dad, thank you for not kicking this 37-year-old off your phone plan. But you get the point. You're very dependent on mom and dad. And then you mature a little. You eventually get a job and you start paying for your own gas. You move out of your bedroom maybe and move down into the basement to get some more freedom. But you're still in their home and you're still on their insurance plan. And then you mature a little more and you move out of the basement. Maybe you get your own apartment. But you're still on their insurance plan. (laughs) Some of you know that very well. And then eventually you get married, you start having babies. You buy a home, you get on your own insurance plan. What I'm trying to say is this. A few years ago, it was time for us as a church to move out of mom and dad's basement and get our own insurance plan. So our elders decided to move forward in this direction in January, February of 2020. This decision, from my perspective, is just the natural progression of any healthy local church plant. But, and you may not remember this, in March of 2020... (laughs) the world shut down, and our elders decided that we were going to punt that conversation until we could, quote, flatten the curve of COVID-19, which, as you may remember, lasted just a bit longer than the initial two weeks that we uh, we were thinking. So, uh, because of COVID and because of a host of other factors, which you all know about if you were here during this time, we ended up pushing this announcement off until January of 2021. So back in January of 2021, we officially announced our departure from the Colossae family and announced our new name, Table Community Church. Here's why I tell you that long story. When we launched in 2015 as Colossae Hillsboro, we launched with the Colossae name, the Colossae branding, the Colossae mission statement, and Colossae values. And to be honest, I was totally fine with that. I was part of that church since the beginning. I helped write 
a lot of those things. And I liked all of those things. However, when we made the transition from Colossae to TCC, our elders intentionally made the decision to reconsider everything we were doing as a church. No pun intended, but we decided to lay everything on the table. And please hear me. We did this, reconsidered what we were doing, not with a desire to change for the sake of change. That's really important. We didn't just want to change things. We had this deep desire to clarify who we were uniquely as Table Community Church and where we felt like God was leading us specifically as Table Community Church. And that began a year-long journey of asking these questions. Who are we? Why do we exist as a church? And how are we going to practically live this out? So as elders and as staff, we started wrestling with questions. Who are we? Why do we exist as a church? And how are we going to practically live this out? And these are the questions I hope to answer this morning and then flesh out more in the next three weeks. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Before I answer these questions, I want to show you where all of this is rooted in the Scripture. We love Jesus here at Table Community, and Jesus loved his Bible, which means we also love our Bibles here. And so we're going to go to the Word so the Word can be our guide. So let's start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The story begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, stop there. You guys know the rest of the story. God creates everything. He creates the mountains and the oceans and the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the grass, the flowers. Now, the problem is when we read our Bibles, most of us read this and we assume Genesis 1-1 is the beginning of God because it says God was there in the beginning and he created. So our initial introduction to God is that God is creator, which is absolutely true. The big tension in that is that God has existed long before Genesis 1-1. And we find out that God has existed as Trinity long before Genesis 1-1. Think about it like this. Um, Let me show you this yardstick. If this is the story of Scripture, so you have Genesis on one end and Revelation on the other end, and this is the story of the gospel. Creation, fall, Redemption, future restoration. Genesis to Revelation. We often view the story of God in this limited view. But what we have to remember is that God has existed forever in that direction as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Spirit. So to use a word we used in last week's sermon, for a squillion years before this moment, (laughs) that direction, God existed somehow in relationship with himself. Now, there are two massive implications, massive implications of this reality. The first implication is this. We'll put it on the screen. Because God is eternally triune, meaning he's existed forever as Father, Son, and Spirit, God is intrinsically loving. He's intrinsically loving. This is why John writes in 1 John 4, 7, God is love. So if you were to go up to John as an old man and say, John, you saw Jesus, right? You walked with him. You heard him teach. You, you saw him heal people. And you saw him commune with the Father. And you saw the Spirit descend on him. John, how would you define this triune relationship that you've watched play out in the person of Jesus? John's answer, as an old man with tears in his eyes, I imagine, he looks at you and he looks at me and he goes, God is love. That's how I would define him. He is love. St. Augustine talks about this idea and he says that if God were a singularity, in other words, if, if God wasn't triune, 
then God's essence could not have been love. Now follow his logic here. Love could have come in later with creation, but it could not be intrinsic to his being because, as Augustine notes, love is what someone does for another. Love is what someone feels for another. So if God were singular only, then he could not be intrinsically loving. But, Augustine says, if it's true, and it is, that God is eternally triune, then that means that God was love before anything came into existence. And this is what led to his famous line. We'll put it on the screen. God is at once lover, beloved, and love itself. Love is intrinsic to our God. Now, please follow me. This is what sets us apart from every other world religion. Ancient polytheism suggests that before the creation of the world, the gods were at war with one another. So, in that scenario, violence is at the heart of ultimate reality. Eastern religions picture God not as a person, but as an energy or a force. So perhaps this energy or this force is at the center of all reality. Monotheistic religions like Islam have one isolated God at the beginning. So in that scenario, maybe autonomy or power is at the heart of the universe. But for us, for the Christian, we worship and serve a triune God, which means that love is at the very center of the universe. Trinitarian scholar Michael Reeves says it like this, this God will simply not fit into the mold of any other. A God who is in himself love, who before all things could never be anything but love, having such a God happily changes everything. And it does. Understanding this reality changes everything, but it's even better than that. Because not only is God intrinsically loving, second implication, because God is eternally triune, he is intrinsically relational. Follow me. God knows nothing other than existing in relationship as Trinity. It has only ever been that way. He has never known a time where he did not exist in relationship. Dr. Daryl Johnson says it better than I can. He says this, at the center of the universe is a relationship. That is the most fundamental truth I know. As it turns out, there is a threefoldness to that relationship. The center of reality is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God is eternally and intrinsically loving and relational. He's eternally and intrinsically loving and relational. Now with that in mind, have you ever wondered why God created? Have you ever wondered why God spoke things into existence? Why did God create? It is a good and intellectually honest question. Because if God existed forever in perfect harmony, in unity, in love, in relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, why did any of this need to happen? Why did creation need to exist? Why did the loving Father choose to create the world and everything in it through Jesus? There are a lot of theories out there about why God created. One theory out there is some people have suggested that God was somehow lonely and that he created us so that he would have companions on earth. Some people have said that God is a ruler and he created us so that he could rule over us like he was an egotistical maniac and needed subjects to lord over. Some people have suggested that God created because he needed more glory, that he somehow wasn't getting enough worship or adoration or glory, and so he created us so that we could give him more glory. And I have a big problem with every one of those theories, namely the Bible. <laughs> Genesis 1.1 does not say, in the beginning God was lonely. And it doesn't say, in the beginning God was needy, or God was bored, or God needed more glory. 
It says, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit created everything we see around us. So again, I ask the question, why did God create? It wasn't because he was lonely. It wasn't because he needed us. He did not need more glory. He created out of an overflow of the relational love he was experiencing forever. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, out of an overflow of their own gladness and contentment and joy, began to paint on the canvas of creation, and you were born. It's what the Puritan Richard Sibbs called the spreading goodness of God. Again, Michael Reeves describes it like this. So next time you look up at the sun, moon, and stars and wonder, remember, they are there because God loves because the Father's love for the Son burst out that it might be enjoyed by many. And not only is God's joyful, abundant, spreading goodness the very reason for creation, the love and goodness of the triune God is the source of all love and goodness. Isn't that good? It gets even better. Look back at the text. Skip ahead to verse 26 in Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, who is God talking to? Himself. He's talking to himself, Father, Son, Spirit. Keep reading. And let them, us, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So wrap your mind around this. We are created in the image of this God. You and I were made in the image of this triune God, this eternally loving and relational God. God, in relationship with himself, said, let us make mankind, make men and women in our own image. So, brothers and sisters, we are at our core loving, relational beings because God is a loving, relational God. And guess what we were created designed, intended to experience what they do. Loving relationship with one another. One of my professors from seminary, Dr. Bruce Ware, says it like this. The very fact that God, though singular in nature, is plural and societal in person, that's just a fancy way of saying that God is Trinity, <laughs> indicates that we should not view ourselves as isolated individuals who happen to exist in close proximity to, uh, to others, but as interconnected, interdependent, relational persons in community. Another one from Michael Reeves. He says this, to be, to exist, is to be related. Because it is true of God, it has to be true of us. We need to be in relationship in order to be, get this, fully human. It is because we are created in the image of Trinity that loneliness is so crushing, that broken relationships are so debilitating, that death is so painful. Lack or loss of relationship violates our essential nature, created to reflect the relational essence of God. At our very core, we are relational beings, God's image imprinted in on our DNA, and it is one of connection, deep, real, loving connection with God and with one another. But here's the bad news. When sin came crashing into the world in Genesis 3, it distorted, fractured, perverted, and marred this loving and relational image. So think about this. Isn't it fascinating when you go read the story of the fall in Genesis 3, isn't it fascinating that when sin enters the world, the first thing Adam and Eve do is not snort cocaine and murder someone? 
That's not what, that comes later in the story of God's people. <laughs> but that's not what they do initially. The first thing that is broken, the first thing that is fractured, the first thing that sin distorts on planet earth was what? Their relationship with God and their relationship with each other. So they hide from God and they start pointing fingers of blame at the other. So, and don't miss what I'm about to say, when Jesus came to the earth and he lived a perfect life and he died a criminal's death and three days later he conquered death and rose from the grave, he did not do those things primarily so that you could be forgiven of your sin. And he did not do those things primarily so that you could not go to hell and spend eternity in heaven. Those things are good and true and glorious truths of the gospel. But that is not primarily why he came to earth. He came to earth primarily to reconcile you and to restore you back into loving relationship with your creator, God, and to restore your relationship with others. Dr. Daryl Johnson once more says this, that is why Jesus emphasized righteousness so much. Righteousness simply means right relationship. Jesus came to reconcile us to the Father, and he came to reconcile us to each other and to ourselves. Jesus did not come just to forgive us of our sins, as glorious as that is. He did not come just to secure for us an eternity with him in heaven, as glorious as that is. He came to repair and restore the relationship that was fractured in the garden. And brothers and sisters, that is good news. Okay. Now, all of that is the biblical foundation for where I want to go with the rest of our time together. And I, I know that that's a lot. Um, that is, again, like I said, something that I, our elders, our staff have been talking about and dwelling on for years, and I just tried to communicate it in like 10 minutes to you. So take a deep breath. We're going to push forward, okay? Now, that is our basis. I want to come back to the question I asked earlier. Why do we exist as a church? Why does Table Community Church exist in the city of Hillsborough? Or another way of phrasing it is what is the mission? What is the mission of Table Community Church? And I will tell you what that mission is in just a moment. But before I do, I want to give a brief word about mission statements in general and mission statements as they relate to the church specifically. So mission statements in general. Every business and company in existence has a guiding mission statement. They are vital to any organization. You can get on any company's website and find it very easily. The reason companies have mission statements is because they help keep values aligned, they keep staff and leaders on the same page, and they keep the vision of the company central. So let me show you one of my favorite corporate mission statements in existence. This is from the Lord's favorite fast food restaurant, Chick-fil-A. Okay. <laughs> Look at this mission statement. This is like the mission statement on their website for Chick-fil-A. It's to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us, to have a positive influence on all who come into contact with Chick-fil-A. Now, let me put it another way. Their goal as a company is to make their fried chicken taste so good that when you take a bite of a sandwich, you glorify God in heaven. <laughs> that even the most hard-hearted atheist would bite into a chicken biscuit and go, Jehovah Jireh, there is a God in heaven. That is their mission, and they excel at it. Now, you're welcome. That is a corporate business mission, although obviously there are Christians leading this company. But churches also need mission statements. We also need mission statements. And let me state the obvious, what is hopefully obvious. 
That mission should be rooted in the Bible, not rooted in one man's opinion or some trendy church model. It should be rooted in the word of God. Will Mancini, who has done a ton of writing and research on this idea, says this, a mission statement describes what the church is ultimately supposed to be doing. It is a compass, a north star, the heartbeat, and a golden thread that weaves throughout every activity in the church. So, with all of that as our foundation, let me show you the mission statement of Table Community Church. This is why we exist. We exist to help every person, every person in this room, in the city of Hillsborough, and in the world, to experience, embrace, and participate in the relational love of the Trinitarian God. This is our North Star, our heartbeat, the golden thread that weaves throughout everything we do as a church. We, your elders and pastors, want you to experience the relational love of God that I just told you about. We want you, in the words of John, to believe it. But we don't want you to simply believe it. We also want you to embrace it, to own it, to move from something you simply know at an intellectual level to something you feel deeply, to let it impact every fabric of your being. And we want you to step into the abundant life that God promises us and begin participating in this stunning, sending, and self-giving love of God. So again, why do we exist as a church? We exist to help every person, every person in this room, every person on our street, every person in the city of Hillsborough, every person in the world to experience, embrace, and participate in the relational love of the Trinitarian God. That is why we exist. Now, hang with me. This is really important. As I mentioned, we have been discussing and thinking about this one statement as a staff and elder team for well over a year. And you have heard me say that line no less than a dozen times if you've been paying attention through the John series and in the Advent series this past year. In fact, spoiler alert, the entire reason we picked John's gospel as our current series a year ago was because John, more than any other gospel writer, highlights this reality on almost every page of his gospel. But here's the question that has been uh, keeping me up at night over the last year. How do I know, if that's the mission, how do I know when we've accomplished said mission? How do I know when we have achieved that? How do I know when we have helped someone experience, embrace, and participate in the relational love of God? Or another way of asking that question is this. How do we know when we have made disciples of Jesus? Because let's face it, a mission statement, a mission statement without a way of measuring it is just a few poetic words strung together with no real meaning. And so we have to ask the question, how do we measure that? And as I reflected on this, it became crystal clear to me that the way we know we're doing this well is when someone, when you all, when I, am living in right, loving relationship in three primary areas of my life. My relationship with God, my relationship with my brothers and sisters, you all, and my relationship with the world. I know that I am experiencing, embracing, participating in the relational love of God when I am in right relationship with God, when I'm in right relationship with you all, and when I'm in right relationship with the world. Or the words that we've been using as a staff are these three words, and we'll put them on the screen. Communion, community, and commission. Let me say that again as you reflect on these words. We know that someone is living out this mission statement when they, through repentance and faith in Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit, are in regular communion with their Father, 
are regularly engaged in community with other believers and they understand their commission to be sent out into the world and tell others about this good news. And as a staff team, this has been the grid we have been putting everything through. Does what we're about to do, does this program, does this ministry, does this class, does this cohort, does this sermon series equip you to commune with God the Father? Does it equip you to be in community with others? And does it equip you to pursue relationships with the least, the last, and the lost? And if it doesn't, then we shouldn't be doing it as a church. Now, I want to admit here, that this has been a bit of an odd teaching. So if you're visiting with us, just know this isn't like a normal Sunday for us. Normally we just walk through like a line in the Bible and then talk about it for 45 minutes. So to, it's fun. Well, that's not funny. <laughs> so I want to provide some normalcy to our rhythm this morning and stop here and ask the question, so what? So what? What does this mean for us? What am I actually saying? Let me address it at two levels. Uh, first, collectively. And then I want to talk individually. So first, at a collective level. As I've mentioned, everything we do as a church is going to be with this as our driving motivation. If it does not help us achieve this mission, if it doesn't help you grow in communion with the Father, if it doesn't help you grow in community with one another, and if it doesn't help you grow in mission to the world, we will not do it. And you will see this play out in every area of our church. You'll see it play out in all of our ministries in our learning cohorts, and in our communities. But I want to point out the most obvious way you're going to see this playing out in the months and years ahead. You will see this playing out in our preaching calendar. So here's what I mean. As I've already mentioned, the Gospel of John was very intentionally, very strategically picked as the baseline long-haul series for the next few years as a church because we believe the Gospel of John sets the theological foundation for where we're headed as a church. And we will continue that series. So don't worry if you're one of those people who are like, I want to finish the series. We are absolutely finishing the Gospel of John, and we will keep working our way line by line through that book. But moving forward from this moment, every six weeks or so, we are going to pause and we are going to focus in on one of these circles you see on the screen. We will focus in on communion as an example, your relationship with God. And we will talk about things that feed and fuel your relationship with God. Things like studying the scripture, silence and solitude, abiding with God, prayer. And we'll spend several weeks talking about those things. And then we will go back to the gospel of John for a bit. We'll be in John for about six weeks and then we'll jump out of John and we'll jump into community. And we'll talk about our relationship in community as brothers and sisters. We'll talk about things that impact your life in community. How to honor one another. How to forgive one another how to love and care for one another. And then we'll go back to John for six weeks or so. And then we'll jump out and we'll do a series on commission. And we'll talk about our relationship with the world. We'll talk about things like church planting and justice and mercy and caring for the least, the last, and the lost. And then we will go back to the gospel of John. And then the cycle will continue for some amount of time. We haven't figured that part out yet. And this is, this is really key because I know several of you will legitimately, I've talked to enough of you to know this, you will be bummed that we're jumping out of the gospel of John at times. You've, you want to just be in a book for a long time. And so please listen to me. These are not disconnected, separate series on random topics. They are intentional and strategically building on John's gospel and helping us keep these three core relationships in focus at all times because we are such a forgetful people. So that's the plan for the sermon series. Again, you'll, you'll hear this a lot uh, over the next three weeks. We're going to focus in on these three topics, communion, community, 
and commissions. You'll hear a lot more about this in the coming weeks. So that's at a collective level, but let me talk about an individual level. At an individual level, our pastoral hope for you is that this, what we've been talking about all morning, would transform the way you interact with God and the way you see the world. One of the things I love about John's gospel is that it points us to the relational love of God again and again and again and again and again. And I don't know if I got enough agains in there, but it just happens a lot. The word love, John is obsessed with it. The word love appears 57 times in his gospel. That's more than three times the other gospels all combined. In his letter, 1 John, he mentions the love of God 47 times. It is a constant theme in his writing. Why is that? Why will he not shut up about it? Because John knows that if you could really grasp how much God loves you, it would transform your life. Each night, my wife and I put our girls down for bed, and after we uh, do their, their liturgy, we speak a blessing over them, I will always pray a prayer over them in the room. And um, the prayer changes uh, a little bit each night, but there's always some form of this in my prayer. I will always say, Father, help these children know how much you love them. And help them know that my love for them pales in comparison to how much you love them. Because God, and I'm always really clear here because I want them to hear this every night. Because God, I believe if they could understand how much you love them, that it would transform the rest of their life. You see, I want my daughters to grow up and be healthy, and I want them to do well in school, and I want them to do well in art and music and sports, and I want to see them thrive in a career, and I'd love to see them marry a godly man someday, and my gosh, I would love for them to have babies. I want to be a grandpa so bad. I don't understand it. I feel like I was born to be an old man. (laughs) But more than any of that, I want my daughters to know how much God loves them. That means more than any of those things in life. I love the way Brennan Manning talks about God's love. He says this, we should be astonished at the goodness of God, stunned that he should bother to call us by name, our mouths wide open at his love, bewildered that at this very moment we are standing on holy ground. The love of God should astonish us and stun us. This reality, the reality of one God, three persons, inviting me into his love, has completely transformed my life, and I want that for every one of you. Now, in just a moment, uh, we're going to wrap up and take communion together. And as we focus our minds in that direction, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to acknowledge some tensions that might be in the room, given the nature of what we're talking about today. Now, normally, good preaching practice would be to put your tensions at the beginning of the sermon to eliminate the tensions up front. I've decided to just throw that out the window and put them right here at the end. So, Here are some tensions that I think are happening in the room right now. One tension is this. It's probably the most obvious one. The Trinity is very confusing. Why in the world would you put that in a mission statement that is supposed to be clear and simple? And that is a valid concern. Some people have called the Trinity a riddle wrapped up inside a puzzle and buried in an enigma. It's what my friend Jeremy calls a theological turducken. so good. The Trinity is confusing, and I get that. That's why we've been talking about it for like a year, to prepare you for this. Another tension that you might be feeling is this, and and I feel this one strongly. Why do we need a vision series? This isn't a business. You are not a CEO trying to raise money. 
In the church world, especially over the last 30 years, there's been so much hype about pastors needing to be the one to cast vision, to be visionary leaders, to dream God-sized dreams, to rally people together for a mission. And I will be honest with you, I have always hated that language. Here's why. You seem to know this about me. I don't feel any pressure to dream big dreams or to create some big vision for you all to follow. Nowhere in the Bible do you see a pastoral call to be a visionary. The vision and the mission has already been set by Jesus. We have been called to follow him. And that is what I'm trying to do. Not cast some grand vision today, but to point us to Jesus and point us to the good life that is found when we are in right relationship with the triune God, when we are in right relationship with one another, and when we are in right relationship with the world. That is what I'm trying to do. And finally, one last tension that is lurking in the room, and this will lead us to the tables. A corporate business mission statement's goal would be to send you out from here, ready to work harder than ever before, to achieve results that no other company has ever achieved. And don't get me wrong, I believe there is room for hard work in God's mission, and over time, I will lovingly push us into some areas of obedience that will make us uncomfortable. But please hear me if you hear nothing else. The good news of the gospel is that the one who ultimately gives us our mission is the same one who sets the table of communion before us. And he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, are you weary? Are you tired? Come, eat, drink, and celebrate.